I told the guy we have about 30 people, and about 15 minutes ago it was like very few. And I said, don't worry, this crowd kind of staggers in. So truth, truth staggers in. Okay, I'm Catherine Lambrecht. This is Chicago Foodways Roundtable. Ooh, we have a guest today, Scott Warder from Culinary Historians. See, Scott, if you come more often, you get more call, you get an applause. I need that. <laughs> anyway, there were two deaths since our last meeting. I think you'll know about them, Joan. You wouldn't be surprised. One was Russell Lewis from the Chicago History Museum. Oh, I'm sorry. Very big shame. He retired on the 1st of April, and I sent an email, and I got a you know one of those auto replies, and it said retired as of April 1st. And I said, you do realize it's kind of a strange way to do it because maybe people won't believe you. And then three weeks later, he's, he died, uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, and then when we were at Kendall, the wine instructor who always came over afterwards if our schedule sort of converged, um, he died. Bob Bamberg. Bamsberg, Bamberg. He was the... Um, uh, he was apparently very well known in the wine community. And a friend of mine went to his service, there was like 150 people, he says, all the wine people in town are here. And, a lot, and he taught at Kendall for a number of years. In fact, um, Deb Silberstein, who's not here today, um, she said he was, she was one of his students over at Kendall. She says it was not an easy class to pass, but she says if you did all the extra credit things, and was helpful, you still passed. But if you didn't do all that, and you didn't pass on the intellectual stuff, well, then you were in trouble. But anyway, um, and he was always intending to do a program with us on presidential wine. And another friend of mine said, that's hooey. He should talk about Chicago wine history. Well, now it's no longer a debate. He's gone. So our program, t sorry, I just thought you'd like to know. I mean, I'm still in shock um, for both of them. Our program today is Joe Weintraub, and I've known him via LTH Forum for years, but today was the first time we actually met in the flesh. It was a pleasure. It is a pleasure. It remains a pleasure. And he's going to talk about this book that he's translated, which I'm fascinated what Paris was in 1846. So come and join us and tell us all about it. Thanks very much, Kathy, and thanks very much for inviting me, and I appreciate everybody who's come. Uh, let me just take a quick... A lot of people ask me, how did I ever find this particular book? 1846, it's never been translated up until a year ago, and that was me who translated it and annotated it. Uh, well, many years ago, I found a wonderful pamphlet by Alexandre Dumas, uh, called Causerie uh, uh, Culinaire, which basically means culinary chats. Uh, as you know, Dumas was, of course, a, a great novelist, uh, The Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, but he was also a gourmand, and his last work was actually the great dictionary of cuisine, which he depended on as, uh, to pay for his retirement, but which he unfortunately passed away before he finished. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, Dumas was also a wonderful journalist, and in this little pamphlet, Causerie Culinaire, uh, uh, he really was, in my mind, one of the first gastronomic journalists. It's a, these are wonderful columns that he collected from his own journal, Monte Cristo, in 1858, put them all together. Anyway, uh, and, and they're all over the place. They're biographical, they're anecdotal, they have lots of maxims and so forth. Uh, so I really wanted to translate this and annotate it, uh, and during my research I ran into Briffaut over and over again, who, by the way, has hardly ever been out of print in French and has never appeared in English. Uh, so anyway, I uh, translated and annotated the Dumas piece, got it published in uh, Gastronomica, 
a couple years ago. And uh, I'd like to re read a little sample from that because uh, uh, for my presentation here, Kathy asked me if I had any, if uh, Eugene Brifaut had any recipes, and I said no, he did not have any recipes. But Dumas has a wonderful recipe that I'd like to read for you, and I hope you've uh, brought your pencils and sharpened them so you can write down everything. And this is from uh, one of his uh, Causerie Culinaire that was written in 1858. Uh, let's see if we can get this. Here is the real, the only, the unique recipe for a Neapolitan, Neapolitan macaroni. And by the way, he got this from Giacomo Rossini's cook. Uh, buy your macaroni at Bontsalazzi's, Rue d'Anjou Sant'Anari 76. He sells the best macaroni in Paris. Well, by the way, that, that alone shows you what kind of journalist he was. He was speaking to a public, very, very casual, very, very informal, at a time when uh, he was one of the few people actually writing about gourmet food. Anyway. Uh, ah, he, now that you have your macaroni, in the morning you will need to get four pounds of top rump roast, a pound of smoked raw ham, four pounds of tomatoes, four large white onions, thyme, bay leaf, parsley, a garlic clove. Cook stirring for three hours. Uh, he doesn't tell you what to do with all these things, but he eventually cooks them for about seven hours, so I guess it really doesn't much matter. Um, at the end of three hours, moisten with plain water until the highest part of the beef forms no more than a small island the size of a six-franc coin. Thank you, Julia Child. Cook, reduce for four hours. Then, boil your macaroni in plenty of water. The water needs to be salted. Taste from time to time. Tear them in half. Overcooked macaroni is worth nothing. It has to, according to the Neapolitan expression, cresca in corpo, that is, swell in essence. The degree of cooking is a matter of sensibility. Even if you've spoiled it twice, you'll succeed the third time. As soon as you consider the macaroni cooked, pull it from the fire and pour a carafe of cold water into the boiling water so that it will cook not one degree more. Yeah, that's pretty good advice, by the way. I think Marcello Hazan would appreciate that one. Then pour it into a colander to remove all the water. Uh, then he says, he's got a little terrine there. Take a handful of Parmesan, and with it, cover the bottom of the terrine. On the layer of cheese, put a layer of macaroni. On the layer of macaroni, a layer of meat sauce. On the layer of meat sauce, a layer of macaroni. On the layer of macaroni, a layer of cheese, and so forth alternating cheese, macaroni, meat sauce, macaroni, cheese. Then when the terrine is full, seal hermetically and serve after 10 minutes. I hope that's all clear and that everyone now will be able to make a macaroni. However, one of these days I'll probably offer you a variation in the hope of improving. In the meantime, eat this one. Okay, uh, by the way, uh, that's Alexander Dubois. By the way, uh, in uh, a memoir, of uh, one of his colleagues, he actually made this recipe for a party. Uh, nobody ate it. They gave it to the staff, who promptly threw it out. But uh, anyway, that was his attempt. By the way, if anybody's interested, this was the article that was taken from Cosby Culinaire. I've got a couple extra copies here, and I'll just put them over here. So, uh, I came across Eugene Brefaux's Paris à Table, in my research here, and I actually got a copy of it. As I said, it's, it's rarely been out of print in France, and, uh, but mostly in an abridged versions. So I took a look at it, and there's a nice little uh, chapter on the restaurants of Paris, which I translated and annotated and got published in Gastronomica. And then there was another chapter I came across, uh, Dinner in Our Times, uh, which I thought could also make a standalone article and Gastronomica published it. And then uh, I decided, well, you know, here's two articles, that, two of his chapters published, let's see what we can do with the entire book. So I finally got a copy of the entire edition, started reading through it, and I said, yeah, this has possibilities. There are some uh, uh, points that may not be that, of that much interest, but a lot of interesting stuff's in here. Uh, although, when I was reading it, there was something, I just didn't quite get the tone that I wanted. 
Um, even in his own time, an English reviewer of Pariyatab said there's, there's something about his style that is, is off-putting and so forth. And it wasn't until I read through the whole book that I realized what he was getting at and how I wanted to translate this particular book. Um, and I finally found out where he was going in the final paragraph of the book, which I'll read to you. Um, by the way, uh, uh, this is the final paragraph of the book, but you won't spoil anything. It's just uh, the last chapter is mainly uh, anecdotes and so forth, so there's no real uh, mystery at the end of it. Anyway, this is the final paragraph that actually gave me the key to the translation. Uh, he begins, and uh, uh, before. Savages eat as much with their fingernails as with their teeth. With them, the first sign of a refinement in their manners is revealed by the use of fingers to seize the food they are taking without first tearing it to pieces. Other people, more advanced, serve themselves with chopsticks. That's progress. The fork with two prongs is in use in Northern Europe. In England, a steel trident with an ivory handle, the fork of three prongs, is the weapon of choice. In France, we have the fork with four prongs. It is the very height of civilization. So, when I read this, I realized this guy, say, is writing with his cheek, with his tongue firmly embedded in his cheek. And with that in mind, I began to look through the translations for signs of irony, for signs of humor. I went back and retranslated the chapters that I had published in Gastronomica and uh, really found throughout it this kind of thread of irony and humor that probably made it very, very possible in his day. I'll give you another example of this. Uh, in one of his chapters, uh, if I can find the page number, he talks about banquets. And this is what he has to say about them. The banquets comprise all types. At their head stands the patriotic banquet. Then come the military banquets, which replaced regimental dinners, philosophical society banquets, political banquets founded to honor or defame, to praise or to blame, the philanthropic banquet, where you eat for the poor who are dying of hunger. The, art, the arts have their banquets. The industrial sector has its banquets. Commemorations in schools have their banquets, and finally, the Masonic banquets, which frighten small children. So, uh, I could see this kind of uh, thread that runs throughout Briefall and made the book a very, very interesting book to translate. Also, in the, there's a, uh, an illustration. One, by the way, this is uh, uh, the first illustrated cop, uh, version edition uh, Pagliatab since its original 1846 uh, publication. Uh, the illustrator is a guy by the name of uh, Bertal, uh, who was a very, very famous illustrator, uh, although he was just a young man at this particular time. Uh, he, he, he illustrated, for example, for Balzac. He did most of the illustrations for the Human Comedy, which was the collection of all of Balzac's work. Uh, and uh, for that paragraph I just read to you, you would think, well, you'd have a little bit of, a, of an illustration of a banquet of something, a military banquet or something. No, Bertal illustrates it with a man dying in the street, dying of hunger. And he does this frequently with his illustrations. There's a very, very close association between Bertal, the illustrator, and Briffaut, the writer. And just about every one of his illustrations refers specifically to a phrase and quite often amplifies the phrase or amplifies the sentence to make it more meaningful for the reader. Uh, when he first met Balzac, uh, he presented one of, a, a drawing of one of Balzac's characters uh, from uh, 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 Pierre Goriot, and Balzac was amazed. How did you create this character? That's just what I was looking for. And he said, I read your book word for word, and I never left the sentences. And he's pretty much the same uh, for uh, Briffaut here. Uh, I, one of the, uh, my disappointments, I, I think it's a great edition. I love what Oxford University Press did with this edition. Uh, but they did not have the uh, a space for captions. And uh, so I actually, at the beginning of the book, I put a list of captions so you can refer back to the illustrations. Because sometimes, 
the illustration actually amplifies and helps you understand the captions. He, 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 even, has, he even illustrates puns and so forth. To give you one example, uh, and this will give you something more of Brufo's style, there's, a, there's a, uh, uh, a sentence in one of his early chapters. He says, and just this, this is it, Thiers was the giant at Lafitte's table. And that's it. Well, Lafitte was one of the major bankers of the time. Thiers was the prime minister in the 30s and the 40s, many, many times, a very, very powerful politician. Thiers, the giant at Lafitte's table. But he also was a small guy. Uh, and he was often teased for his height. There's a story of Thiers giving a speech in the legislature, and he left his pen on the podium. And a man from the opposition, Gambetta, came up to the podium and said, oh, excuse me, excuse me, Monsieur Thiers, he raised his pen, you forgot your cane. <laughs> so anyway, there's a drawing there uh, of Thiers uh, for that one sentence. Thiers was a giant at Lafitte's table. And you see this man who is uh, uh, clearly Thiers. One thing about uh, uh, Bertal, the illustrator, was he was very, very good at drawing real people. And you can identify a lot of the people in his drawings, like, like Talleyrand, for instance. And for example, this is a very famous engraving of his. And that's the author, Briffaut, uh, whom he draw for the, uh, the cover of the book. But uh, when Thiers did the illustration for, or excuse me, when uh, Bertrand did the illustration for the Thiers as the giant at Lafitte's table, you saw this little man with a big head who was clearly Thiers sitting on two dictionaries and his feet dangling off the floor. And that, that's a, a good example of how, one, the illustrations uh, amplify what Briffaut was saying. And many times Briffaut was very referential. He expected you to understand what he was talking about. He expected his contemporaries to know exactly what he was saying. When he said, for instance, that uh, uh, a level of restaurants is very well known for the venison of Montfaucon, he expected to you know that uh, Montfaucon was where they buried all the dead horses. So, if he was saying that a restaurant served the venison of Montfaucon, that was not a recommendation. Uh, by the way, I, I said there was, and, and that is an example of how referential he says. He says nothing else. He doesn't describe anything else. He expects you to know. And that, that basically was my uh, task, was to find these references and within my footnotes, put you the contemporary reader, the 21st century reader, in the same state, in the same state as uh, Briffaut's public. Uh, because the journalists of the time, like the journalists of our time, expected you to get these references. There's one that I mentioned in the book earlier that there, there are no recipes. There actually is a recipe in this book. Uh, in his first chapter, he talks about all the provisions that go to Paris, uh, the thousands and thousands of steers and pigs and hogs and wine and so forth. Uh, they were very fond of st statistics in the 19th century, and, and uh, that first chapter is full of statistics. Uh, and then he says something very interesting. He says, in the year 1843, 18,000 hectoliters of vinegar were used, and therefore, three times the amount of oil. Okay. That's all he says. Now, you of cooks probably know that he just gave you the recipe for a vinaigrette. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, clearly, with the illustrations... Uh, uh, Briffaut's intent was to entertain. And one of the ways he found of entertaining was through anecdotes. If you read the gastronomic literature of the time, uh, particularly Briass, Savarin, and others, it's full of anecdotes. They love telling stories. Briffaut loves telling stories. Now, a lot of the stories that he tells aren't his. He stole them from other people. Uh, but uh, he usually gives some kind of attribution, but... Uh, uh, he wanted to fill his, uh, his book with the best stories of the time. Uh, it's almost as if, and I, and I feel the same way with Briar Savarin, the, physio the physiolo uh, physiology of taste, uh, that you're sitting at the table with him saying, guy puts his arm around your shoulders, hey, I got a great story to tell you. Anyway, uh, uh, it's full of anecdotes. There's even a French a term, anecdote, a verb, for using anecdotes at the time. Uh, and Balzac said, who used a lot of anecdotes himself, that anecdote, and this is for all you writers out there, anecdote is the perfect anti-narcotic. 
Okay, uh, anyway, let me read you one of the stories that I like, if I can find it here. Uh, one second. And some of his anecdotes have absolutely nothing to do with what he's talking about. He would just uh, pile them at the end of the chapter and says, oh, I got some good stories for you. And here's one of them. Uh, and here's one of them, which he stole from a, a journalist by the name of uh, De Girardin from a small little uh, uh, column that she wrote in 1840, which I'm sure he never thought would be published in collected works and very well known, but he took it word for word. Uh, although he did say he was citing something, so I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Anyway, let me read you this anecdote. A German countess poured some tea. A German baron, instead of using sugar tongs, took some sugar with his fingers. The countess marched over to the window, opened it, and tossed out the sugar ball. The baron quietly finished drinking his tea. When he was done, he also went over to the window, opened it, and threw out his empty cup. Okay, and two months after the scene, the Baron married the Countess. So that has a happy ending. Now let me read you one more anecdote. It doesn't really have a happy ending, but again, it will give you the idea of the style of anecdotes that uh, appealed to uh, Briefo. Um, this is one that he took from uh, another source, actually a botanical magazine. And this one, he, he does give an attribution. Uh, let me see if I can... Yeah, the Arabian dinner. He talks about, and by the way, one of the characteristics of the, uh, the book, he not only talks about Pariatab, what, what was on the Parisian table, he, he, a lot of his anecdotes talk about travelers' tales. There are two long ones about Chinese banquets. He's trying really to inform you, the public, about the eating ways of other civilizations as well as his own in France. Anyway, this is one of those. The Arabian dinner also has its singular ways. A traveler recounts one such meal, an offering of African hospitality. After having walked a good part of the day under the blazing African sky, we found ourselves at the door of a Muslim monk. He received us courteously and offered us a splendid dinner. After the couscous and a mutton prepared in beef fat, Two dishes I did not recognize were served. One was a roast that I took for a shoulder of lamb. The other, a fried dish I believe to be a vegetable unknown to me. All of it was accompanied by some rolls from a sort of soft russet dough. A moment afterward, we were served the same vegetable, pickled in a salad and boiled in vinegar. With this last method, it had retained something of its original shape. Having taken a complete piece of it, I examined it with care. My stomach quaked. My face turned pale. My heart jumped, and a cold sweat ran down my brow. I had just recognized on this supposed vegetable legs, wings, antenna, and a head equipped with strong mandibles. It was a grasshopper. The fried dish, the salad, the boil and everything, including the rolls, was composed of these insects, grilled, boiled, fried, or dried, and kneaded into cakes. The monk noticed the terrible disgust these dishes inspired in me. The Arabs, the Tartars, the Egyptians, and all the peoples of Barbary, he said to me, make a considerable business out of these insects, which they consider an excellent nutritional source. They preserve them, dried or pickled, and they flood all the markets of North Africa with them. I thought offering them to you would give you some pleasure, but, he cheerfully added, since you don't like the grasshopper, you can go back to that shoulder of dog. Okay. <laughs> and that's, uh, like I said, the, uh, the, the book is full of uh, anecdotes like that, and the clear uh, intention of these is to entertain, but... Uh, Eugène Briffaut had a, a different goal. Uh, he was a journalist, and one of the things that journalists of his time did was try to represent life as it was lived in Paris at that time. They knew that it was fleeting. They knew it was going away, everything they saw. They lived in a great time of transition as well. This was the age of the Industrial Revolution, of the steam engine. They saw the sails going away and being replaced by steam engines on boats. This was the age of the railroad. And in, in, in particularly in publishing, this was the age of the great printing presses as well, 
which made newspapers and books very, very acceptable and, and affordable for large numbers of people who could never afford them before. So uh, it was an age which, and they recognized this age of transition, and there are many journalists, not just before, who intentionally are trying to describe their life as they saw it for posterity, uh, to memorialize it, as it were. Um, Balzac was doing this, and he said that in his preface to the, to the human comedy, how he at times was just the secretary of history, writing down what history gave him so people in further ages would know how these people lived. Uh, so let me give you one paragraph in the first chapter where uh, Briefaut sets out the real purpose of his book, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, find this. During this journey, he talks about in the book itself, we will attend those solemn and sumptuous meals where ambition, politics, and boredom take their seats. The silliness and vanity of the social climbers, the triviality of assured opulence, the ridiculous bourgeoisie, the parsimony, the destitution concealed beneath the luxury, all will in turn be revealed to us. The uncertain life, active and animated by a young population. There will be no sanctuary impervious to our efforts. We will go sit down at every table by the side of the most powerful and the most humbled, with the voluptuous, with the artisan and the laborer. We will be at every celebration, the palace, the mansion, the clubs, the tavern, the dining rooms, the bankers and the halls of restaurateurs, the cabaret and the back rooms, the attic, the workshop, the sleazy dive, and sometimes the sustenance taken on the run by the Parisian laborer. Diligent to capture nature in the act, we will discover each in its turn like those who, to study animals, choose the moment they devour their prey. So he sees himself as a scientist, too, observing life as he sees it. Uh, there's a wonderful example of it. Let me read you. Uh, uh, and like I said, he, 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 he's not kidding. Uh, he goes through all levels. He quite often starts with the sumptuous, the luxurious, the, 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 the meals at the, uh, uh, at the royal palace, for instance, the Tuileries. But he does go down. He goes down further, down into the middle levels. Uh, this is one little chapter that he talks about one of those middle levels. And, he's, and a lot of the book, I said, there is one, you would think that a book, Paris à Table, would be all about restaurants. Well, there's only one chapter about restaurants. He talks about everything. He talks about the clubs. He talks about the taverns. He talks about what people eat at home. Uh, and this is one of those chapters here. This is from uh, a chapter entitled Dinner in the Current Age. Uh, no populace is more inventive about the pleasures, resources, and necessities of domestic life than that of Paris. Following the affluent bourgeoisie, whose existence borders on the opulent and the aristocratic, come the more modest classes, and we arrive at the office clerks and those living off of small incomes, mediocre pensions, and the most narrow of profits, off of uncertainty and the most slender of means, and still, at every level, to the degree that well-being diminishes, you see the care, the solicitude, the effort, and the intelligence increase. The slightest dish is prepared with infinite art. The aroma of a certain lamb stew has made the wealthy man who has just passed in front of the porter's shed on his way to eat a truffled turkey quiver with desire and delight. It needs also be said that no other city offers more resources to the smaller fortunes and to the discretion of those who wish to hide their thriftiness from sight than Paris. The number of those small dinners, composed sometimes of a single dish, makes up the majority of the modest meals homemakers prepare with as much zeal as if it were the finest cuisine. In such diminished diets, there is nothing neglected, nothing shoddy. When the Parisian entertains or receives, he wants to gain a certain amount of credit from those he has invited. For that, he spares nothing. He knows how to conceal his adversity. And it is not rare when vanity or self-interest is at stake for an embarrassed household to roll out a luxury purchased on credit, bringing along with it, as a consequence, extended grief. But for a couple of hours, a veil has been thrown over a poverty 
that modern manners have made almost into a crime. And for the moment, that is good enough. To give a dinner sufficient to establish a reputation for opulence, there are houses willing to fast for entire months and for one day of luxury endure long and oppressive deprivations. A woman about to leave for the ball, brilliant in diamonds and lace, dines with her maid, namely, by dunking in turns a sliver of bread into a soft-boiled egg. And that's one of those portraits that he constantly draws here that he said he was going to draw. And to my mind, it has a, has a, a large relationship to the, actually the realistic novels of the time, because those people, Zola, uh, Balzac, uh, Hugo, and others, were uh, doing pretty much the same thing. And one, one thing that's interesting, I found that in my reading of the gastronomic literature, uh, for the first time in the 19th century, particularly in France, the novel had food as a site, and by site I mean S-I-T-E. You had novels where people actually went to restaurants that, that everybody could go to. You had novels around dining tables and so forth. Balzac's uh, Paragoyo takes place in a table d'hote uh, uh, begins around the dinner table and so forth. And this is the first time that's happened. Uh, and many of the restaurants that are mentioned in this book are also mentioned in the novels. Uh, Briffaut went to many of them, uh, and people like Flaubert, uh, Hugo, Zola, talked about the actual restaurants that you could go to there. Uh, there's one marvelous scene in uh, uh, Alexander Dumas' son, the son, his, uh, his book, The uh, Damo Camille, Camille uh, from which La Traviata was taken, where the uh, main character is sitting there at the Maison Dorée, a new restaurant that just opened on the patio, and looking up aboard uh, across the street at the balcony of the Café Anglais which was a famous restaurant for its private rooms, and he sees his love for the first time, Marguerite Gautier, come out on the balcony, and there she opens a bouquet of camellias. But the fact of this, as evidence to me, is you have two sites here, two restaurants that were in separate corners across from each other that you could go to if you had a lot of money. Now, I mentioned those restaurants, and one of the best places to observe manners and habits as restaurants. The one of the interesting things about this book, it's not really a foodie book in the sense he really doesn't talk very much about food. He never walks into a kitchen. Uh, what he's interested is in how people eat and everything surrounding it. He's interested in the, in the time people eat. He's interested in what's on a table. He's interested in the conversations that go back and forth. He mentions food quite frequently, uh, but to him, he is trying to create a book that describes what he terms the mur. Uh, we would translate you know, mur as more, but I, I don't do that. I translate it in a couple of ways. It's a difficult word to translate as uh, the manners of the time, the customs of the time. He uses that word almost three dozen times in his book, uh, habitude, the habits of the time, the customs. That's what interests him. And it almost becomes a book, as with some of the other journalists, as I mentioned earlier, uh, of almost proto-sociology, proto-anthropology. And I think people, and I too, had trouble sometimes with the style of the book as a translator because I'm not certain that he had the vocabulary to describe what he wanted to describe as a scientist, as a journalist perhaps, but as a, as a uh, 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 journalist he falls back on phrases like mur, manners, customs, habits, and so forth. Um, but he's very, very interested in observing how people act and observing how people lived in the same way that the novelists of the time uh, observed what they saw around them. Anyway, um, this is uh, one of the best places to observe people is a restaurant, and not just the food. This is what he talks about when he walks into a restaurant. For the purpose of observation, and for people who do it for simple amusement, dining out is a resource whose range, in some ways, is almost impossible to measure. The whole of society comes to pass under the gaze of the diner, who contemplates and studies it at its most expansive. It is not the smart society of the drawing rooms, the busy world of the streets, the poses and pretensions of the boulevard promenade, the concerns of the theater and concert hall. It is a multitude struggling with sensations that have carried it away despite itself. To follow the gradations of conversations 
to follow the degradations of conversation at neighboring tables is a study full of interest. My wife does that a lot, by the way. Listen to what other people are talking about around them. Uh, usually, the early stages are reserved and restrained. Rather than speaking, people observe themselves and others. But soon, uninhibited emotion emerges, rises up, and is revealed. It is a general confession, one of the most entertaining. All prudent and discreet intrigues, by the way, whether matters of interest or of gallantry, sentiment or opinion, ought to dine in private rooms. By the way, most of the famous restaurants in Paris at that time did have private rooms where you could take uh, your latest uh, uh, find uh, out for dinner and avoid the wife. Uh, that the series of characters is unending and constantly renewed increases still more the charm of the spectacle. There are groups of burlesques. There are isolated caricatures of all ages, of all features, and of every nuance. The characters on the stage have nothing to compare with this variety. At every moment, the panels of this magic lantern change, and the images are renewed. The silence of some, the chatting of others, embarrassment, timidity, clumsiness, audacity, and self-confidence, impudence even, cries of impatience, transports of satisfaction, all those characters so diverse and shaken by so many passions, the tastes, the obsessions, the surprises, the disappointments, the raptures, the anger of these here and the bliss of those there, all form a succession of sudden contrasts full of attraction in the restaurant. And that's him on the restaurant and what he was observing. Um, He also, in his first chapter, he, he mentions that uh, he is going to cover all levels. So he does spend some time with restaurants at the highest level. Uh, and he sees, in, in, it's kind of interesting here, he's, he's pretty uh, critical of most of the restaurants of the time, and rightfully so. And I think other commentators have pointed it out. There was a little bit decline in the restaurants. They had in Paris a golden age from about 1810 to about 1825, during the, the empire of Napoleon and after his defeat and the restoration. Uh, and then it went into sort of a decline where a lot of the restaurateurs kind of, you know, uh, floated on their past reputation. A lot of them depended on the opulence of what they had on the walls rather than, as, as, as uh, before says, in the dishes. Uh, and, uh, uh, so he talks a lot about that with a highly critical tone, although he had, does have some favorite restaurants of his, one of which was uh, Trois Frères Provençal, uh, which was famous for its brundade, and, and Catherine has made a brundade for you to experience there if you want a, a real taste of the times. Uh, but, uh, but he also talks about the restaurants at every level, uh, and that for me is, is really one of the interesting parts because you don't hear a lot about them. Here he talks a little bit has to say about some of the, uh, what he calls the prefix restaurants and those on the left bank that serve students. We would like to talk about the prefix restaurants. And by the way, the, the, that, that we would like to talk about, that gives you, which you, you might have sensed somewhat in the, in the Dumas article, that very, very personal tone that he gives. He, he's talking to you as, as somebody across the table. Um, we would like to talk about the prefix restaurants. The first class ones are at two francs. Uh, by the way, two francs is about what the average laborer earned an entire day at that particular time. Uh, there are lower prices that he'll talk about, but he says the first class prefixes are two francs. That is the first of the seductions to which foreigners and provincials succumb. A choice of four dishes complemented by soup and dessert, a half bottle of wine, and all the negotiated exchanges that can be carried out, attract, and dazzle them like fool's gold. New clerks, worn-out dandies, doctors without patience, lawyers without briefs, the young writer whose first article was posted that morning, the provincial actors waiting for work on the chairs of the Palais Royal, and non-commissioned officers on the town decorate the two franc tables. Sundays, the hosier is found there partying with his lady his young man, and his girls. From this price, passing down through all the levels, and so much, okay, excuse me, all the levels, 
from one reduction to the next, it falls to 80 centimes, with two or three dishes, soup, dessert, and a small carafe of wine. Within the abyss of the prefix are absorbed all of the offal and refuse of the butcher and all the suspect supplies. The regulars at these tables always eat a lot of bread, which they get on request. They are so unsure about the next day that for them, stuffing their stomach is like filling their pockets. The prefixes proliferate, especially in the Latin Quarter and the neighborhoods around the Palais Royal. Have we said that those of the lowest rank compete at Montfaucon to supply their pantries? In the Latin Quarter, next to the prefix, but above it, stand the dirt cheap restaurants. The maximum is 30 centimes a dish at the disposal of the gentlemen scholars. That solemn moment of the day, which kitchen and restaurant staffs call the dinner rush, runs its course with an unparalleled violence. Young appetites pounce furiously upon the substantial dishes. A general cry of distress rings out when the chef proclaims in a resounding voice this terrible sentence, there's no more beef. Two or three restaurants on the Rue de la Harpe and Rue Saint-Jacques, at the head of which we place Rousseau and Fliquito, are distinguished among all the others. By the way, both those restaurants, Rousseau and Fliquito, Fliquito is mentioned in uh, uh, Balzac, uh, uh, and where one of his clerks goes to eat, and Rousseau is mentioned actually in Les Miserables as a place to eat. Uh, and that was famous, well, I'll go on in a second. Um, on the tables, the carafes are gigantic. The wine within is what could only be expected. Uh, Rousseau, by the way, was accused of watering down his wine, and he was referred to in, in many circles as Rousseau the aquatic. Anyway, um, now let me just, uh, does any of this really have any meaning for people now? I mean, uh, Rousseau's, Fricoteau's, they're all gone. Most of the restaurants that he speaks about are gone and no longer there. Some of the customs and habits are, are totally different now in Paris. But one thing that I found somewhat relevant is his discussion of waiters. The restaurant waiter forms a class separate from all the other categories of the service. There are waiters who age along with the house and from whom the secrets, the clientele, and all the wiles of the seraglio can keep nothing hidden. For a major establishment, these old servers are priceless. They know so much, they're not easily fooled. When a waiter is intelligent, allow him to take the lead, and profit and satisfaction will follow. If he has had proof of your generosity, and if you have been congenial and polite with him, he will serve you with zeal and good taste. Do not annoy him. Rely on his knowledge. When the stinginess or bad humor of those he is serving irritates a waiter, there is no end to the tribulations he invents to antagonize his victims. He proves to be both ingenious and barbarous in inflicting torment. General rule, to be happy with the waiter, make sure the waiter is happy with you. In the private and reserved rooms, the waiter's service is more intimate it requires greater mutual trust. The mysteries of the restaurant are not the least interesting chapter among the mysteries of Paris. The waiters get to the bottom of all of them, but they are discreet. Occasions for laughter are often available to them when, in the ingenue of the day, they recognize the coquette of the evening whom they will perhaps see with a new admirer the next day. He should never be embarrassed it does not matter if the waiter comes or does not come when called. What is essential that his, is that he is never at fault. He has two replies, always at hand for requests that prove embarrassing to him. Sir, it's not yet ready. Or better still, sir, there's no more. And also the famous, voila, which is an answer to everything. And so, voila. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to take them. And by the way, I have some copies of the book if anybody's interested. Uh, are, are any of those restaurants in the book still, still here? Uh, probably there is a reference to the Café Procope. 
which is still there. That goes all the way back to the 17th century, but not so much for what it serves or its food, but rather for who actually went there. It was a Café for Copa was very well known, because I think at that time it was close to the, uh, one of the theaters, and all the actors and actresses and playwrights, Moliere and so forth, came there for a cup of coffee. Uh, there's a couple of restaurants. He talks about Vefort. Uh, there is at the Palais Royal a Grand Vefort, which is a little bit different. That's an interesting restaurant. Uh, if you go there at the Palais Royal, it's, it's a beautiful restaurant, and they, they do their best to keep up a kind of like a 19th century style with very 21st century prices, by the way. Uh, and uh, right in the, on one of the, the, the door jam, you can see Cafe Chartres. And it was originally the Cafe Chartres. And it was, I think, in the 1820s, it was picked up by the Grand Vefort. And there was a restaurant uh, that was actually Vefort, uh, and the Grand Vefort, the Grand Vefort was totally different, but trying to capitalize on the name of the other restaurant. But those are the only two that I, that I think are, are, are still uh, in extant. Uh, it was probably a little bit different to them, and who knows, who knows exactly what he had, did, he had done with it, uh, uh, and they probably were, went to the truffle turkey instead. Was it the first pasta dish they'd seen, and they had macaroni before? That, well, they, they had macaroni, I would think, although not a lot, I and mean, you get the feeling because it took him so long to find that recipe. He went all over Paris looking for it before he found a cook who would tell him what the recipe was. He was, by the way, he was very familiar with, with Italy uh, and Italian food because he lived in Italy for many years. But yeah, at that particular time, there, uh, there probably was not that familiar. Although, right in Brefaux's time, around 1846, uh, uh, a lot of European restaurants of different kinds, you had German restaurants, you had English restaurants, you had Spanish restaurants were coming in. And he talks about the cosmopolitanism of the Parisian restaurant scene. Uh, and he has a great deal of praise for that as well. Uh, it has more about how people lived. The, when it, the, when the, not, the first edition that I got came out, uh, Le Monde called it the best view of Balzac as seen from the table. And I just read you know, small portions of it, but it's just replete with stories about life and people of the time uh, and how people ate. And moreover, what is interesting about the book, and, and I've read a lot of literature at the time, it doesn't just look at the luxury restaurants and the fabulous restaurants, as you can tell from what I was reading. It, it talks about the labor in the street, literally. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, uh, illustration by Bertal uh, of a woman who has a grill wrapped around her head, and there was one of these grill queens who used to walk the streets of Paris serving labor, sausages, and whatever they could grill, and they had a, a whole grill that they carried with them and basically sold to working people for the most part. Yeah, it's, it's got all the illustrations there. Uh, there are about 120 of them, I think. Uh, and as I said, I have a, uh, something like that. And I wanted captions on them. This is actually Talleyrand. And, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, and I have a list of the captions that I, that I would put under these illustrations about a chance. In the original, there were no captions, but the illustrations were always near the phrase or the sentence that, uh, uh, that uh, Bertal was trying to illustrate. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, and the illustrations are fun. He's very good. He's, uh, Bertal also illustrated, not also beyond Balzac, he also illustrated two editions of uh, Briar Savarin's Physiology of Taste. Uh, and those are wonderful additions to illustrations too, which have never been reproduced. They're not reproduced at all in the, uh, the current. The current physiology of taste is, was uh, translated by M.F.K. Fisher, whom many of you might know. And that, that's been printed. Briand Savarin, that, that's the high point. That's the classical gastronomic literature in France. That was uh, published in 1825. And uh, 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 Brifaut not only knows a great deal about the book, he also steals a little bit from it as you can imagine. But that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to do what uh, 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 Briar Severin was doing. Briar Severin was more global. Briar Severin did all about food and production and so forth, but also how people ate and also wonderful anecdotes. And uh, uh, Briffaut uses that as kind of a model without, for the most part, a lot of the scientific stuff that uh, Briar Severin goes into. The first restaurants were before the revolution. Uh, so you did have a, a group of people who actually cooked. And there was a, and of course you had 
people had to eat, and you had what they call a lot of traiteurs. Uh, traiteur would be translated nowadays as caterer, but these were more than just caterers. They were like cook caterers, and they, uh, 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 they would have tables, and what they were cooking, they would serve at the tables. They would, you know, you, you, they would, if you wanted to, they would come to your house if you were close up and, and deliver a meal to you. Uh, and they, they also catered very, very large banquets and so forth. And they were very, very possessive about their, uh, their, their craft. And it was very difficult to start a restaurant because if you started a restaurant, there would be some cook caterer would, would sue you because you would be breaking the rules. No, restaurants aren't allowed to cook meat. And they weren't. Uh, only cook caterers are allowed to cook meat in the streets. Uh, they had a lot of what, what I would basically call guild rules that prevented restaurants from really burgeoning in Paris before the revolution, although they did spring up before the revolution. Uh, a lot of, during the revolution, there, a lot of the, uh, the aristocratic uh, uh, staff did find jobs at restaurants. Uh, the restaurants really started up with about around 1800 uh, with uh, Napoleon, and I'm sure they hired a lot of the staff uh, and as they became more popular, the first restaurants were very popular. There was nothing like that in Europe. You had inns, you had table d'hôte, you had pensions, you had places to eat, but nothing like a restaurant where you could walk in, you get a menu, and you could order something off the menu for a particular price at any time of the day. Uh, and they were extremely popular, and people came to Paris like they do now just to eat at the restaurants because they had nothing like that at home. Uh, so obviously you, you, they really just burgeoned. I think I read somewhere there was about 300 restaurants in Paris, about 1800, and that had gone up to about 3,000 in about 1820. So obviously they would need a lot of staff. Uh, it was a tough job. Uh, Carême, uh, uh, who's the great chef, probably the, the, the major uh, celebrity chef of his time, Antonin Carême, uh, he studied, he was actually... Uh, uh, by his father, put on the 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 the, the floor, of the uh, the step of a baker, and and, and the father just disappeared. Uh, he was abandoned as a child, taken in by a baker, learned the baker's art. Uh, from there, he went into uh, uh, doing desserts, opened up his own patisserie, became very popular, and eventually became the chef of the Rothschilds and the Duke of Wellington and, and uh, uh, the Tsar of Russia and so forth. Uh, but it was very difficult. He died young, and people think that he died largely because of his job. You, you would be in the in downstairs, usually, in the basement, and all the heat that you had there was from coal or coal dust. So it was a very, very foul environment. It's like cooking in a coal mine, basically. And you would be cooking all day, uh, particularly if you worked for a very large house that required a great deal of, uh, of effort and, uh, and tedium. Uh, so he died about the age of, I think, about 50. Uh, and it was a tough job, but it, uh, it was very, very competitive. Um, but you did have uh, uh, chefs who started their own restaurants and were famous for them and so forth. Not too many in Briefaut's time. It really, really expanded again. As I said, there was a little bit of decline in restaurants. Uh, one commentator uh, uh, blames the fact that it was the, the a bourgeois society and everybody wanted to eat at home. And Briffaut himself says you get better food at the great dinners in people's houses than you do in the restaurants. Uh, but uh, around uh, uh, the Second Empire, which started in 1852, uh, and the Belle Epoque, that's when restaurants really again started to reach a second golden age. And that's when you have uh, Dugleray, uh, Escoffier, and people like that. Uh, whose names also became famous. Culinary schools? Uh, I don't think I can remember, and actually, uh, I refer to that briefly here. There's a culinary school called the Cordon Bleu, and that actually started, I think, around 1890 as a culinary school. Uh, and the, I, the, the Cordon Bleu means uh, the blue ribbon, blue ribbon chef, blue ribbon. And usually that was referred to women chef. One of the interesting things about this book is he has a great deal of praise for women as chefs, as not, excuse me, not chefs, as cooks. Uh, women were not necessarily chefs in the great restaurants, uh, but they were cooks in people's homes. And he said, you can get a good meal from a, a great cook as you can in a, uh, uh, in a, uh, in, in a restaurant. And they, he called them cordon bleu, cordon bleu chefs. And uh, uh, that term, 
was there as a distinction of fine cookery. It wasn't really an official term, but it was used in history. And then there was a, a, a magazine called the Cordon Bleu, which basically went to mostly women. And it was a term that was associated with women. And then I think around 1890, the same person who did the magazine, the Cordon Bleu, actually started a school called the Cordon Bleu around 1890. And that, as far as I know, other than being a... Well, you know, in the 19th century, if you wanted to learn a profession, the best way to do it was to you know, hire on at a restaurant or at a law office or somewhere like that. And most of the... Uh, uh, a lot of the, the professions had interns and associates and so forth. And that's where you really learned your trade, as did most of the chefs in... Uh, uh, in that period. Yeah, well, well like I said, uh, Carême started like age of five, basically. He was left on the door of a, of a bakery, and he started at that age. So you, know, you devoted your life to it, basically. And actually, in France, they, they still have that kind of... You really, really learn to be a chef in France by getting on the line. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, although he doesn't talk much about food necessarily here, he talks a lot about conviviality. And that's a term he uses frequently. And that's what he f feels quite often is missing in a lot of the dinners, in a lot of the, uh, the banquets and so forth, where people are really doing business. And he has a, uh, he really says, no, we no longer have those. He, one of his favorite dinners is the old bachelor dinner, he said, where bachelors get together and just have a good time. And from there, from, you know, three in the afternoon to, to 3 a.m. in the morning, eating everything they can. Uh, yeah, conviviality is very, very important, and uh, you get that from the time, too. He, by the way, uh, Brifal, was a very, very well-known gourmet himself, not as a cooker or, or a chef, but as an eater. And uh, one person says he, he drove about 30 restaurants into bankruptcy by not paying his bills. He, uh, he, there, there had a, uh, he had a kind of a thing that he used to do. He call, they called it uh, uh, cloche à la Brifal. And uh, he would uh, challenge people to take one of these big bell jars that you put over cheeses, fill it with champagne, and drink it in one draft. And he was very good at that. Uh, nobody else would, uh, could compare with him in drinking a, a magnum of champagne in one draft, but he could. He was very proud of that. So. But he was, uh, he was very well known as... Uh, and, and uh, they even talk about him most, uh, most of him, he was seen in restaurants, you know, writing his articles, you know, with empty bottles and empty plates all around him as he would write his articles for the next paper in the morning. He was a well-known editor, too. He, he was pretty, in, in the 30s, uh, it's, it's really kind of amazing. He is one of these people who have just dropped out of sight. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia mention. But he was editor for many papers and was very well-known. And then around 1840... He decided to start his own paper. Uh, he did a fashion annual, which only lasted for one number. And then he did a small kind of a people's magazine, a paper called Historiette Contemporain, which lasted for about a year. And then uh, he probably needed money, so he wound up uh, writing some books, like this one, which was 1846. Before he did this one, he did a, a book called Paris à uh, which is all about the River Seine and all the professions and uh, people who are, uh, uh, use the River Seine for some kind of, uh, 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 for both entertainment and for labor. Uh, and he was a, just a general writer. He did a book on the Duc d'Orléans, the biography. He did a manual of dominoes, which is very nice. Uh, and he also did a, a critique of the Catholic Church, which was kind of odd. But, uh, and then, unfortunately, he, uh, uh, he had some really rough times uh, he kind of married a, a woman of the streets that didn't work out very well, and he wound up in a, a mental institution where he died at the age of about 50. Any okay. other questions? Well, thank you. Like I said, I have some books here if anybody's interested. I'll be happy to. Okay. Oh, Joe, thank you very much. Yeah. And by the way... Uh, <laughs> it's perhaps apparent, but he's got a background as a dramatist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we made two items for today. One is the brandad, which is with the um, uh, the salted codfish. And I have to tell you, I, even when I get home, i got to write a note to myself how I made it, because there's so many variations of this recipe out there. It's mind-boggling how to proceed, or what's the right way to proceed. So I'm going to make some notes to myself, and then I'll, I'll put something on the website eventually. Um, the other thing is pots de creme. That was made by Deb Silberstein, but she's got a cold. So she and I met in a parking lot. 
and I picked up 30, quant, uh, 30 pieces, and I think that's roughly what we have, but if you take a look at that and go, oh, that's too much for me, just take some and put it on your plate because there's going to be somebody else who reacts like you, and I probably will have enough for everybody. If not, well, you know. It's very helpful if you let me know you're planning to come because then I know how many people to count for. And when I had to give her an estimate on, on, um, on Thursday, I put down 30 because really I didn't feel the people were coming. Don't worry, Joe. It's an interesting topic and people obviously showed up. But I need that feedback. So even if you think you may are coming, but you're on the edge, still let me know because it helps me figure out how much food to bring. The other thing that's up there, unrelated to this topic, but I had to do a program on mushrooms on Monday and I still have some pickled mushrooms left. So what's there is there. So anyway, um, we'll see you next month.